or to the nursery and toddler room uh, through this door over here. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the events that, of our lives this week that led us right back to this place again. We thank you for the ways that you strengthened us, the ways that you taught us, the ways that you stretched us, the ways that you convicted us, the ways that you grew us, the ways that you comforted us, the ways that you provided for us. Lord, we thank you that you were with us every step of the way this week, and we thank you that you are here among us even now through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that that Spirit would go forth and open our ears and open our eyes, illuminate us to the meaning of your word here, that we may gain a deeper understanding of what it was you instituted 2,000 years ago, and that that would change our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are many stories out there about the ways people have stumbled upon priceless works of art, most of who had no idea what they, what, that what they had was worth millions of dollars. There's the 2010 Telegraph story of a painting that the Air, U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Martin Kober, who, who lives in Buffalo, New York, so nice place to live, had stored behind his couch after a, a stray tennis ball hit it about 37 years ago. In 2003, Cobert decided to investigate the painting since the family's tradition was that it was a Michelangelo and brought it to Antonio Forcellino, an Italian art restorer and historian. Through much research and investigation, Forcellino is convinced that Cobert's painting indeed is an unfinished Michelangelo painting of what he had sculpted as the famous Pieta. You see it there. Forcellino's research found that the painting was done for one of Michelangelo's friends in 1545. The painting later belonged to a German baroness who left it to a lady in waiting who just so happened to be a sister-in-law of Kober's great-grandfather and the painting was moved to the U.S. in 1883. Forcellino was, has estimated this, that this painting could be worth up to $300 million. I got a kick out of this next story from The Guardian about a painting by the Hungarian artist Robert Berenie who had been, miss, that had been missing since the 1930s. At Christmas time in 2009, an art historian named Georgily Barkley, Barkey settled down with his three-year-old daughter to, reach the, to watch the 1999 movie Stuart Little. And many of us have seen this movie, Stuart Little. It was airing on TV at the time. While Barkey was watching the film with his daughter, he noticed a painting in the background of the family's house in the movie. The painting he recognized was this barony painting from 1928. Barkey had seen a black and white photograph of this painting in a museum archive, but since he knew barely anyone else had also seen the photograph, he knew the painting in the background of this movie was the genuine painting that had gone missing since the 30s. 
Since this was before Barkey had a TV that could pause and rewind, and it was only airing on TV, Barkey had to try to catch more glimpses of the scenes where the painting was in the background to make sure he was right. Later, Barkey emailed the film production companies and contacted as many crew members as he could. Finally, a set designer responded to him and told him she had, bought the paint, she had the painting in her house. This set designer had bought the painting as a movie prop from an antique store for a few hundred dollars, then later bought it from the production company. The set designer eventually sold the painting at a 2014 auction for about $250,000. Every believer in Jesus from about 2,000 years ago until now has a priceless and indescribable treasure, something we can join into regularly. But many of us don't know the incredible value of it. In the Corinthians case, which we talked about last week, they not only didn't think about the vast value of what they had as a church, but they outright desecrated it. Today we're going to talk about and hopefully discover the incalculable treasure of the observance of the Lord's Supper and what meaning it continues to give us as believers. And I think we'll all view communion a little bit differently after digging into these verses here. So the first point that we have this morning as we continue on in 1 Corinthians 11, is the reprimand. If we remember from last week, this is just a bit of a review, Paul had to rebuke the Corinthian church by saying that every time they gathered together for worship, and especially to partake in the communion of observance, they gathered together for worse, not for the better. Every time they gathered together, it was for the worse of the church, not the betterment of it. Why? Because they had taken elements from pagan temple celebrations, such as drunkenness and gluttony, and spilled it over into the church's gathering. Not only did they desecrate the elements of the Lord's Supper, such as the bread and the wine, that were supposed to symbolize Jesus' body and blood, but they were demeaning each other and creating bitterness and disunity within the church. If you remember, the early church would meet in the home of one of the more wealthy congregants of the church for the first 300 years of the church's existence. What was happening in the Corinthian church was that that wealthy homeowner was handpicking other highly, higher societally status people and sitting them in their dining room while relegating everyone else, probably the lower societally status people, out in their atrium or main lobby area. What was worse was that the homeowner was giving the better quality and portions of food to those in their dining room and leaving the inferior quality and portions of food to the rest of the church congregation out in the atrium. So what was going on, according to verse 21, was that there were some who stuffed their faces before anyone else could get any food, probably those in the dining room, and there were some who were being overlooked and going hungry, probably some out in the atrium, and then there were those who completely missed the entire point of the Lord's Supper and, and were getting plastered with booze. What they were doing, as Paul notes in verse 19, was showing the church... Who was deemed good enough 
to be in the dining room and who is deemed not good enough and therefore placed in the atrium. What a blatant trampling on the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't that? The gospel of Jesus teaches us that God plays no favorites with those whom He calls to salvation and earthly status does not matter at all in His eyes. All that matters is faith in Jesus. That's it. That's the bottom line. We've all been bought by the blood of Jesus and it has nothing to do with us or any kind of earthly status. In fact, biblical Christianity levels the playing field and shows us that all of us, no matter who we are, are reliant upon the grace of God. It has nothing to do with any, anything of, of us. It's everything to do with the grace of God. And to be grateful for His grace, for all that... His grace is all that protects us from eternal damnation, from eternal condemnation. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with His grace. Paul pulled no punches in calling them out for this ludicrous behavior, but even going so far as to exclaim at the very beginning of verse 2, What? What is wrong with you? What is going through your minds? I can't even believe what I'm hearing. The Corinthians needed a swift kick in the pants, and that's what they got. But Paul didn't just leave that part of the conversation there and end it. Like a good Bible teacher, Paul goes on to remind them of the priceless treasure that gathering together for the Lord's Supper really is. So he gives them the reprimand, but next he gives them the reminder. We only have two points today. Well, this is the longer of the two. The reminder. Paul reminds the Corinthians of what he had no doubt already taught them when he first planted the church. And no doubt taught them when they had observed the communion together. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 23. If you didn't, that, that's fine. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's in the New Testament. And I want us all to see this together. Verse 23. And he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. According to one biblical scholar, Jewish teachers would often pass on the teachings of Jewish tradition by saying that they had received the traditional teaching from Moses, even though they actually received that teaching from earlier teachers, they meant that it ultimately went all the way back to Moses. In the same way, Paul most likely means that even though he also received the teaching on communion from the earlier disciples, some of who were there at that first Last Supper, that this tradition ultimately went back to Jesus' institution of it. In that way, Paul also received it from the Lord and then passed it on to the Corinthian church. And what was that teaching? That on the night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table or communion, what also happened that same night? That He was betrayed. The same thing happened on that night. We know that Jesus celebrated the Passover with His disciples at other points in His ministry, probably twice already up to that point. But it was the night that He was betrayed by Judas Iscariot that He instituted this remembrance. That in and of itself is incredible. We're going to see this. 
We read in the Gospel of John that Jesus says to his disciples on this very same night, I am not saying these things to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this fulfills the scripture that says, The one who eats my food has turned against me. Jesus responded, It is the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Now this is huge. One biblical scholar noted that it was customary in this time period and culture that to extend a piece of food to another represented an extension of grace and friendship. Jesus had ex- when he Jesus doing this, Jesus extends one last offer of grace towards Judas, which Judas took, knowing full well what he had already done and what he was going to do. The ultimate act of betrayal. Judas had already received the 30 pieces of silver from the Jewish authorities at this point. He knew he had already done, and he knew what he was going to do. Now something world-changing happens at this point. Judas was acting out of his flesh and following temptation up to this point. But he had gone far enough. That's all he needed to do. Satan himself seized the opportunity and willingness and openness of Judas's heart to evil at that point to ensure that his wicked plan would succeed. The death of the second person of the Trinity trapped in human flesh. We read, when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. Then Jesus told him, hurry and do what you're going to do. Who is Jesus talking to at this point? He's talking to two people at this point. He's talking to both Judas and Satan himself at this point. What's very interesting about this, as one biblical scholar points out, is that even here, at this world-changing point in human history, between the forces of darkness and Jesus, it's not Satan giving any commands, is it? It's Jesus still giving the command to Satan. That's huge. Even in this betrayal and what Jesus knew lay ahead of him very shortly, Jesus was still showing his authority over Satan. There is no other name and no other authority other than God the Father and God the Son. And whose spirit do we have residing within us? God the Father and God the Son, the Holy Spirit. Even in the midst of your deepest and most powerful and darkest spiritual battle the forces against the forces of evil in the unseen world, the being who resides within you is indescribably more powerful than the Prince of Darkness himself. And he's the one giving commands. And all of that is wrapped up in just this one verse describing this on the night that Jesus was betrayed. What happened on the night that Jesus was betrayed? He took bread, and verse 24, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All right, let's see what's all involved in this here. By Jesus taking the bread, He wasn't simply reaching for the first thing that caught his eye. What were he and the twelve observing? 
Passover. The Jewish Passover. That's what Paul's teaching that he received from the other disciples, what that was rooted in. And that's what our communion observance, even today, is rooted in. Is rooted in the Jewish Passover. The Lord's Supper is not the Passover itself, because we also read in the Gospel of John that Jesus, dying as the Passover lamb, fulfilled the entire observance of Passover itself. That is why we as Christians are not required to observe Passover, but we do follow Jesus' commandment to observe His His. Uh, fulfillment of it in his death and resurrection known as the Lord's Supper or communion on a regular basis. Likewise, whereas Passover was a requirement by Jewish law to be observed by all adult Jewish males and to go up to Jerusalem every year to offer the required sacrifices, observing communion is not integral to our salvation. Some churches teach that observing communion or partaking in the Mass is integral to your salvation, but the Bible clearly teaches that salvation from sin is only based in Jesus and in His death and resurrection through God's grace on us to accept that. Faith in Jesus alone. So getting back to the Passover... When God reiterates the instruction for observing the Passover, he says to Moses, Eat it with bread made without yeast. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast, as when you escape from Egypt in such a hurry. Eat this bread, this is huge, the bread of suffering, so that as long as you live you will remember the day you departed from Egypt. What I want to focus on here is this description of the Passover bread as what? The bread of suffering. The word suffering here and elsewhere usually refers to the Israelites suffering in Egypt and God's deliverance of them from that Egyptian suffering. That's why when the Israelites ate the unleavened Passover bread, they were to remember the suffering they had experienced at the hands of the Egyptians and God's grace upon them in delivering them from that suffering and darkness. Now this is crucial to our discussion this morning. Jesus applies that very same Passover bread along with all of its symbolic meaning to Himself. We read in the Gospel of Mark, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it. Then He broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, Take it. All of its symbolism, all that it means, I'm applying to myself. This is my body. Everything that you know about the Passover bread, it is now being applied and identified with me, with my body. By Jesus applying the Passover bread with its symbolism of both suffering and deliverance from suffering to his own body and giving it to his disciples to share with them, is huge. Jesus was saying with just six simple words, take, eat, this is my body, that he would be experiencing the physical suffering connected to that bread, that his disciples would share in experiencing physical suffering connected to that bread, and that it would be Jesus' suffering that would ultimately deliver his disciples as it will for us from our suffering and darkness and sin. 
All of that wrapped up in saying, take, eat, this is my body. Suffering for the sake of Christ should never come as a surprise to us. It should never come as a surprise to us. It's simply a given. God has had a lot of grace upon us in America so far. But we should not be surprised if we suffer for the sake of Christ. It's simply a given. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. Since they persecuted me, naturally, logically it's what's going to follow, they will persecute you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me should not come to any surprise to us. In fact, sharing in Christ's persecution and suffering is a badge of honor for the believer in Jesus. Paul says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But, but, if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. It's a badge of honor. If you want the inheritance, you must also want the suffering that goes along with it. But Jesus has already and will ultimately deliver us from suffering and darkness. He has already delivered us from the darkness of the grip of sin over us and eternal condemnation. And one day he will deliver us fully from earthly suffering and darkness. We read in Revelation 21, he will wipe away every, not just some, not just one, every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. No more. It's gone. All of these things are gone forever. That is coming. That is coming. Jesus will deliver us from the suffering and pain and darkness of this world. And this is what we have to look forward to. Can I get a witness? Amen. And all of that identification with Jesus and His deliverance is all wrapped up in Jesus identifying the unleavened bread of suffering with His body and therefore sharing it with His disciples. And what is the point of all of that? Well, we read it in verse 24. To remember. Right? The point of all of that is to remember. To remember His suffering on our behalf. To remember the suffering He has called us to as believers in Jesus, as His followers. To remember the breaking of His bread has delivered us from the power of sin and the powers of darkness in the unseen world. And to remember that He will deliver us from the suffering and darkness of this world when He returns for us. What was the next element of Passover that Jesus applied to Himself? The cup of wine, right? In the traditional Jewish Passover observance, there were not individual cups of wine for everyone who was partaking. There were between three and four communal cups of wine that were passed around the table for everyone to share in. It was symbolic of the whole family observing the Passover together. Remember, Passover was not just a meal like any other. 
It was a meal of symbolism. It was a meal of observance. It was a meal of remembrance. So each part of the meal meant something. The original Passover meal consisted of these three things. They shall eat the flesh, roasted lamb, that same night, roasted with fire, that's that roasted lamb, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. The original Passover was three elements, lamb, bitter herbs, and unleavened bread. The unleavened bread, of course, meant that the Israelites were not only to physically remove the leaven out of their houses, but also to remove the sin out of their lives at the same time. It was to remind them, as we already read, of the haste they had to leave Egypt. The roasted lamb was to remind the Israelites of the lamb's blood that they brushed on the door frames to protect them for the judgment of God on the Egyptians. The bitter herbs or bitter salad greens such as romaine or horseradish was to symbolize the bitterness of the slavery that the Israelites had been under in Egypt so they wouldn't want to return to it. That was the ideal anyways. So they wouldn't want to return to it. But Jesus chose to only use two of these elements, the bread and the wine. They also uh, drank wine with it as well. One of these reasons may be that those were the two staple foods that he knew anyone anywhere in the world had access to. Some kind of grain, staple, and some kind of drink, staple. The theological reason, most likely, is that the bread already symbolized Jesus' deliverance of his followers from the bitterness of sin and darkness, and the bitter herbs weren't necessary to include. But the next element is the cup of wine. In Jesus' observance of Passover, the night he was betrayed, this may have been either the third or fourth cup, or the last cup, since he says in the Gospels that he wouldn't partake in wine again until the kingdom of God comes. So whatever last cup this was, that was the one that he used to institute this part of the Lord's Supper. What does the wine represent? Verse 25. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Not only does Paul say that the wine symbolizes the blood of Jesus, but more so, what else? The establishment of what? The new covenant. The bread represents Jesus' suffering, our suffering, but also our deliverance. But all of that is meaningless without the blood. All of that is meaningless without the blood. There can be no deliverance without first the shedding of blood. That goes back to the Jewish law as well. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, only the high priest ever entered the most holy place and only once a year. And he always offered blood for his own sins and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. This is an illustration pointing to the present time. For the gifts and sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of the people who bring them. So Christ has become the high priest over all the good things that have come. He has entered that greater, more perfect tabernacle in heaven, which was not made by human hands and is not part of this created world. With his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. 
So not only did Jesus' blood as the fulfillment of the Passover lamb now protect us from the judgment and condemnation of God, but it also paid the final once and for all requirement for the atoning blood sacrifice of death for sin God required from Israel once a year. That blood is what offers us security in the atoning or paying the debt of our sin if we accept what Jesus' blood accomplished on our behalf. But that's only half of what Jesus' blood shed accomplished for us. What's the other half? The establishment of the new covenant. You've heard that term before. What's the new covenant? Well, if there's a new covenant, what does that have to also mean? That there's an old covenant first, right? What was the old covenant? That which the nation of Israel entered into with Moses as their representative before God, which the Jewish people still regard themselves as being under today. As one biblical scholar pointed out, the Old Covenant was based on the written word, the law, that God wrote the Ten Commandments himself on two stone tablets and had Moses write down the rest of it. The nation was held to obedience of every commandment written down in that law to show their obedience and love to God. It was a conditional covenant or promised agreement. And that if Israel did not hold up to their end of the bargain in obeying the law, they would be condemned and punished for it. There was no salvation found in it, only a curse for disobedience. However, as again pointed out by one biblical scholar, the new covenant is not based on the written word, but on the living word. The one described by the Apostle John as the word in John 1.1, who is not only with God at the beginning, but was God at the beginning, Jesus Christ. God first reveals this new covenant through his prophet Jeremiah. He says, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The prophecy first reveals the future existence of a new covenant that will be unlike the old covenant, but not necessarily how the new covenant will be established. We have to wait until the New Testament to discover that when the author of Hebrews says, "But For by the power of the eternal Spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is why he is the one who mediates a new covenant between God and people, so that all who are called can receive the eternal inheritance God has promised them. For Christ died to set them free from the penalty of the sins they had committed under that first covenant. See, there's no hope in the old covenant. There's only hope in the new covenant. And the only way one can enter into the new covenant with God is by God entering into it with them. You notice that? Only those who are called by God into this faith in Jesus will Jesus give the opportunity to be part of this new covenant. But rest assured, Paul says elsewhere that those God has called, 
he also sanctified. And those he sanctified, he is already glorified spiritually. The new covenant is not conditional like the old one. Since it was the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead establishing it and mediating it, it does not depend on us. Thank God. The new covenant is not conditional. We cannot fall out of the new covenant because Jesus is the one upholding it and mediating between us and the Father. Once you answer that call, you're in. Because God's faithfulness is perfect and unfailing. So by Jesus sharing the wine that he identifies with his blood, with his disciples, he extended the new covenant to them. And he extends it to us by identifying, identifying with us in faith of what that blood paid for on our behalf. And every time we partake in that which represents the wine, we, re- we remember the payment of His blood on our behalf, the protection of His blood on our behalf, and the extension of the new covenant we are now under by faith in the living Word and in His indwelling Spirit. We do not have fear of a curse connected to the Old Covenant. We have only the blessing of joy and peace and hope connected to the New Covenant. What a gift! Amen? What a gift. Lastly, Paul says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whenever we gather to partake in the bread and wine of communion, we not only remember what Jesus has done for us, but we proclaim it as truth until the truth of His return for us happens. See, many, many people all around the world partake in many, many different rituals for many, many different reasons. Most of these are to commemorate a dead ancestor or to achieve some kind of state of peace or to appease some deity or to pray for a dead loved one or to symbolically purify oneself or to identify with a deity. But all of these are very limited in scope. Not much else is connected to them. But only one sacred practice proclaims the power of hope. Only one proclaims the opening of the riches of God's grace. Only one proclaims sacrifice and atonement on our behalf. Only one proclaims the gift of physical healing. Only one proclaims the healing of spirit, mind, and soul. Only one proclaims purpose and meaning in this vast universe. Only one proclaims redemption and transformation. Only one proclaims a king who will return for us and deliver us out of this wicked world. Only one proclaims the freedom from hopelessness and darkness. Only one proclaims victory over the forces of evil set against us. Only one proclaims victory over death itself. Only one proclaims the hope of eternal, conscious, and meaningful life. Only one proclaims that God who loved us so much that He didn't want us to die in our sins. He sent the only unique one to take our place so we could be with Him for all of eternity. 
And so we will proclaim it regularly until he returns for us. And we will proclaim it with unwavering confidence. And we will proclaim it loudly. And we will proclaim it with power. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this instruction that Paul gave to the Corinthians. And what reminder it gives to us today. That when we gather together each month to partake in the Lord's table, all of the meaning and all of the symbolism and all of the hope and all of the power that comes with it, I pray that we would not easily forget the words of of your word today. But the next time we gather together as a family, bought by the blood of Christ, we would remember. We would remember all of the meaning that's all tied up and wrapped into the simple observance of communion, the simple observance of the breaking of your body and the shedding of your blood. And Lord, I pray that it would fill us with your power. That we would go out from this place today proclaiming the truth of what you have done for us. That mercy you have had upon us. Like that demon-possessed man we talked about at the very beginning this morning. We We would go out and proclaim the truth and mercy you have had upon us that we may bring one more soul into your kingdom. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close our time this morning.